Well, hello there. It's uh, Norm Allen here, and welcome to another of our very occasional and sporadic On Further Reflections with Norm Allen. Uh, today, I'm delighted that I have uh, Stacy Campbell with me, who is the CEO of Prison Fellowship Canada. She and I have been friends for probably most of the 10 years that she's been the CEO of Prison Fellowship Canada. Uh, and as many of you know, I have been a friend of Prison Fellowship, both in Canada and internationally, for much of Touchstone's life since the 19, 1984. And with my friendship with Ron Nickel, the former president of Prison Fellowship International, I have a deep affinity to the work and the people uh, of Prison Fellowship, uh, both in Canada and in other parts of the world. But uh, there's a, a whole interesting side to uh, prison fellowship and my connection with it because I knew that my job was to help those who were in leadership and dealing with the loneliness and brokenness of leadership but at the same time somehow I was drawn to have a significant part of our work be with people who worked with those on what I would call the other side of the street so Rick Tobias of Young Street Mission, Ron at Prison Fellowship, Greg Paul at Sanctuary, uh, Dion Oxford at the Gateway and some of the people who were Stacy's predecessors for better or for worse. But wonderfully for me is that Stacy at this stage and at my age, I am seeing her fulfill some of the dreams some of us had years ago for what Prison Fellowship Canada could become, uh, that it could be a respected organization in the cr criminal justice system, that it could have wide national impact. And for years and years and years, it had good work, but it was it just struggled. And I would say that the thing that I'm thrilled about with Stacy is that there has been significant growth, both numerically, but more importantly, in breadth and depth of the quality of the work that they do. So welcome, Stacy. Um, Thank you. It's nice to have you. So just tell a little bit about yourself and how you and I have been ragging sort of ragging at each other over the years and we'll continue on the conversation <laughs> that iron sharpens iron norm it's uh <laughs> it's right there in the bible so uh been very good thanks very much for having me on it's uh it's a pleasure to be with you today so um yeah we have intersected on some of those um on some of the celebrations but also some of the difficulties of of building uh prison fellowship up, up over the last uh over the last 10 years and and uh getting that into the provincial system the federal system getting that coast to coast and and all the things that come with uh, all the pains and all and like i said all the celebrations that come with uh with leadership as you're growing up leadership across the country and at the local level in in, uh, in the different provinces, so uh, so really have appreciated our uh, our friendship and and uh, our time together. Now you've been on quite a journey because you, uh, when I think I first met you, you were running a, a direct marketing uh, direct mail marketing business. Uh, mm -hmm. You were the CEO owner, and at the same time, you were volunteering for Prison Fellowship. But you were on a spiritual journey and an intellectual journey, getting your master's degree in. Uh, NGO or uh, charitable uh, management, and uh, and then you've subsequently got a doctorate, uh, and so it, it, it's interesting. You've been on this journey, but somewhere along the line, ten years ago or a little more, you felt called to be the leader of Prison Fellowship Canada and to serve uh, prisoners and their families and the victims of crime uh, in our country. So 
talk a little bit about what that process is that what was that inner thing in you that caused you to end up going in this direction yeah so it's been a, a an exciting journey a bumpy journey um at times for sure and it was uh it was when i started out really what happened was as you said i i was running a, a direct mail marketing company in uh, in ontario and and had a nice robust staff and a and a big operation and and i enjoyed it um but if i could say i was a little bored um after year after a number of years by the time i left i'd been there for 25 years and i was a little bored and had had a little bit of time we'd done some mergers and acquisitions and that was exciting and i love business i just love business and and so that was exciting but i just wanted something that was meaningful and and I think I was probably around around my 40s when that when that started to um, kind of inkle in me and I looked at two different routes I looked at going uh, back to school and doing a pursuing a master's of law or going in and pursuing a master's of divinity and I chose divinity uh, thinking it would be less of a struggle <laughs> <laughs> we, make, we make a lot of those kind of mistakes along the way. We underestimate what a mess this world can be in the theological and ministry side. That's right. Fallacy number one. So went into that and and really saw that I was going to keep my business and then be part of ministry and it was all going to come together so nicely. And I was going to be like Paul, the tent maker and everything in my business was just going to flow into the ministry. And, and this would be so great. And and of course, that's a whole other story, but that is not um, at all what uh, what happened. But the prison ministry, it wasn't something that I, I pursued. Um, I would say it's something that pursued pursued me, and I really didn't see the connection. God laid it on my heart every time, and what that looks like, what calling, like somebody says they got a calling. Well, what's a calling? Does the phone ring? Um, it doesn't. Um, but for me, what happened was I'd get into conversations, and then all of a sudden it would be, um, I wonder what this would be like to share in a prison or I'd take a course and this would be so good in our Canadian prison system. It's so broken. And it was just relentless. This idea of prison kept chasing me and I kept saying, no, 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 no. I am corner office, not, not corner cell. And, and really it chased me for six years until um, God does what God does um, and put me in the belly of a whale. And I said, uh, fine, I will travel with a group of prisoners for one year uh, through Bible study. And I will commit to that as a volunteer. So that's how I came into um, prison fellowship. Um, wasn't happy here's, about here's, doing it. Here's a question. What did those prisoners teach you that year? Like you were there as the teacher, but what did they teach you, do you think? Yeah, well, really great question. The first, uh, my first session, you know, you go in with all these ideas of who the prisoners are and they deserve to be there. And I got what I, I pay my taxes. I do what I'm supposed to do. I get what I, what I deserve and they get what they deserve. Um, so that was the first, uh, that was one of the first things that I learned was, was an absolute fallacy. And, um, but, but what was interesting is this group, this first group that I got, my first question was, who is God? That was my first question when I walked in, never met these people, um, had a class. And that was my question. And they just took off. And I was, I was gobsmacked, really, to hear them talk about 
um, Jesus was their savior. Jesus was their companion. Here's a copy of their prayer journal. And they take it, they took it out and showed me all their conversations and every single one around the table, uh, professed a, a life giving relationship with Jesus Christ. And I thought, what are you doing here? And, um, and so, but as time unfolded, what I learned was that was God's grace to me because I couldn't handle anything else <laughs> coming from my narrow uh, theological underpinnings and all, all the rest of it. And I will tell you, I've never met a group like that again. So a lot of challenges when one starts to come uh, with assumptions about who we're dealing with, like we've just come out of the COVID thing and a lot of people have said, I feel like I've been in prison. And having been in a few prisons in various parts of the world, I, I often don't say anything, but as you know, sometimes I can't avoid it. And, and it, it is just so far from reality uh, that even the most restricted of us with masks and whatever other mandates has no idea what it's like to be a prisoner in the Canadian system. So can you, can you describe a bit what the experience is for a prisoner? That's a, that's so, a big question, and it, yeah. for every one of them, there's a different story. But you know, in general, right. talk about what they lose, what they feel. So there's this this movement that that happens as you as you journey into a prison and and through a prison, and of course, you come um, having been built up sometimes by a lawyer to say don't say this say this this is your story and so you can come in with a very distorted idea of what your story actually is because before you even got there your story has been repackaged and edited and you've been left on the cutting floor so so that's how people typically come in with this real confusion and then come into this abrupt place where you lose all autonomy you lose privacy uh, you lose physical privacy, you you lose um, any privacy when you're talking on the phone or or writing a letter, all that gets reviewed by somebody else. And, and there's a lot of clipboards walking around watching and assessing your behavior and all of a sudden you're under you're under a microscope and, and any one of us who would be put under that, um, somebody could come up with a with a false pathology about any one of us um when you're put into that kind of a that kind of a situation so you so then there's a lot of anger building there's a lot of frustration building as you're losing your autonomy you're losing your story and you're sitting in a place of confusion anyways and then you're bad you're bad you're just bad um you're always bad you're always wrong and and there's no there's no redeeming that we need to just keep slamming you and pounding you um, that you're wrong. You did this. You did this. You did this. And so now you need to go figure out this this in in, um, you know, with the prison psychologist or you need to go find this out and you need to write this. And if you don't write this, you're not going to get paroled. And and so it's a it's a profound loss of of self um and i an identity that happens yeah like i visited in a uh, a few times up at beaver creek a minimum security uh north of toronto uh visiting a friend a few times and he, and i had great credentials from uh, then deputy director uh, of 
Corrections Canada, our good friend Pierre Allard, one of the wonderful figures in prison uh, ministry in Canada. And so I had a pretty open door, but boy, I was, I was, uh, I was under somebody else's power the moment I went into that place. And my friend who I was visiting, he had no power whatsoever. They could do with, to him whatever they wanted uh, just because they could. And it often was that case. And so talk, talk about what your experience has been now over 10 years of uh, trying to figure out, okay, what, what helps these folks? What is going to serve their needs as opposed to what is our need to say something? What is, what are you hearing about the heartbeat, the, the things that they're saying to you, boy, that was helpful to me. Mm -hmm. It's so simple. People need to be heard. Um, people need an opportunity to, to have a safe, a safe space, a safe place. And that's the one thing that, um, you know, whether it's prison, prison fellowship or another organization that goes in, we don't carry clipboards um, and our power's neutral. We don't really, we don't have any power over them. We don't have any power over the institution. We don't report back what gets said in a, in a, in a program. And so you can provide this wonderful um space where you make a covenant of how you're going to treat one another and how you're going to talk to one another and it becomes this safe space where you can ask the most um, absurd question of what were your needs when you got arrested there's no one in the world asking the question what were your needs at the moment you got arrested um but they're but they need to talk that needs to come out before they can ever come close to any kind of victim empathy or discussion on victim empathy and and that's been a big that's a, been a big aha um because typically you know you go in and you're a christian organization and you go in and you do bible studies and and that's all very good and we do that but there are precursors to that that need to happen and that is that building that trust in the relationship and proving that you actually can build a safe space um for someone to take a look at what happened without judgment, without any judgment. Let's just pull this piece of the story out and take a look at it because crime itself serves a need. It meets a need. So what was the need at the moment the crime was committed? So being able to offer that and being able to in yourself as a volunteer or a staff member going in being able to legitimately not judge. Um, it's a really sacred thing. It really affirms a calling to do it. Um, I can't, I never would have ascribed this work to, to me or my personality uh, before going in, but somehow um, it happens. And do you think that comes from, uh, where, where do you think that comes from? Your sensitivity to the brokenness of others and the desire not uh, to judge? I think it comes from two places. I think it comes from my own brokenness. I think it comes from my own, um, my own story, um, of brokenness. And I think it comes from, um, a real earnest desire to see redemption and see people on that journey and play a part in that, in, in that journey. Um, and it's easy to judge the people we've never seen. And that was my immediate experience the first time that I went in, that 
right from day one, Norm, from day one of uh, going in the prison, they were so not who I thought, uh, who I expected to meet when I went in the prison. They were you and me. And um, with different circumstances and different choices, um, they were you and me. Now, you, while, while you've been doing this 10 years as CEO and seeing unbelievable growth, I forget the numbers when we were at lunch, but it was something like, uh, well, actually, I have the numbers written down in front of me, so I can actually <laughs> know them. But uh, when you took over in 2013, there were nine prisoners where work was going on, 67 volunteers, three staff, and 18 churches. And subsequently, mm -hmm. the now, 10 years later, you are have ministries in 141 prisons. Uh, you have 2,300 volunteers nearly and 17 staff, and you have relationship with 500 churches. And while you were doing all that, you were married and had two kids who were adolescents and are now adults, one whom's a psychotherapist and one who's uh, uh, working on his engineering uh, education. Uh, what, what in the wide world of sports, how did you do all that uh, while you're supposedly also doing all these other things that take a lot of time? Yeah, so very, certainly a very supportive family. And and one of the things at, at Prison Fellowship that we did too was um, we got rid of this um, this idea of nine to five, that everything had to be nine to five and everything had to work in rows and orders because the people yeah. we serve- you, you, changed, you changed it from six in the morning till 10 <laughs> o'clock at night. That's, that's what, that's what you did. Maybe, but maybe with gaps in between where you were where you were also doing stuff as well. And one of the things that I love is even though that I have I have led a very um, intense work life for sure, all the way all the way through from from my first job until until now, I've also been able to um, spend every March break with my kids, spend every Christmas with my kids, spend every PA day with the the kids when they were younger. I was pizza mom on Fridays. and so it it was. It was, I took a look at the people that were here and myself and said, okay, we have this whole life to live and we do have these key deliverables and we, we do have things that we have to give, get done, but we have a whole life to live. So how do we live our life and make it, and make it all, all work. And so there's been a lot of flexibility for myself and there's been a lot of flexibility uh, for, for others uh, while we get this done. No mistaking ministry, doing any kind of ministry work. And if anyone is out there thinking they'd like to go into ministry, it's intense. Um, for sure, there's an there's an intensity to the to the schedule and getting and getting things done. But you know, we I, I I didn't do it all alone either. And sometimes the leader gets the credit, and that's not necessarily not necessarily fair. I've had a I've had an outstanding team. Um, and been been really, really blessed with the people that have come alongside and and the just the breadth and the capacity and the um and the compassion that this whole team has has that that's how it that's how it got done. Now, um, I don't know, it must be I don't know if it's a year ago or whatever you invited me to come and participate in a filming session where uh, we were to talk about forgiveness and I, I was going to tell my story about Edmonton Max, which at some point I'm going to get a recording of from you so that I'll be able to share it with my constituents. But um, so you were creating something called the forgiveness journey. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, yeah. And so that's a significant program that is applicable to federal, provincial people who are 
you know, talk a bit about why you ended up landing on something called the forgiveness journey as a key educational resource for what you do. So the beginning of it actually was that we didn't have a program apart from um, apart from Angel Tree. We didn't have a formal program, and so we were always borrowing other literature studies, whatnot, and and running one offs. and And one of the things I I wanted to see in in prison fellowship is that our programming would match match our mission and and what we were actually doing. So it it actually didn't begin as the forgiveness journey. It began as something that um, another colleague here at, at Prison Fellowship and I sat down to to write. And it was just kind of, what do people need to know about the theological journey? And so there were all these different um, subjects that we looked at. And, and as we were going through it and getting it close to the end, I then invited Ron Nickel in to, to, to edit it and, and beef it up and, and uh, turn it into a fully fledged um, curriculum. But as I prayed about it, what was coming to me was you need to do every, do the whole thing from the perspective of forgiveness keep the subjects, but do it from the perspective of forgiveness. And so I called Ron because he had already started on the on the project and was kind of a little nervous to say, eh, we're going to do a we're going to do a U-turn here. We're going to do the whole thing from the from the perspective of forgiveness. And he said, you know, that really resonates with me. And um, and so Ron and was when you're talking about forgiveness. I mean, you could, that means a lot to different people. Right. So mm -hmm. we're talking about being forgiven, forgiving others, forgiving yourself, uh, forgiveness from God. What, you know, like yep. like as I learned that one time in in Edmonton. Uh, I had five days to teach and I had all this, you know, the normal evangelical bump back in the day. And I'm almost embarrassed to remember that's what I taught. But it was, you know, day one was God and sin. And there's a gap between humanity and God. And then day two is Jesus is the cross and the bridge and whatever. And I forget what day three was. But day four was the implications of all of this are reconciliation and forgiveness. And everybody was fine. They, you know, yeah, Jesus is the bridge and whatever. Then the minute I said, uh forgiveness and reconciliation are implications of you becoming a follower of jesus the thing blew up in my face and they went you don't know what the hell you're talking about yeah. and and so it was the trigger for the great learning for all of us in that room over the next uh 24 hours or whatever it was and yeah. uh and, and it was interesting to me that if you want to get people upset say, well, forgiveness and reconciliation is your expectation. Mm -hmm. It's not extraordinary. It's just normal. Right. Yeah, and that's that's exactly right. real good at all that, right? Yeah, that's right. If you took a group of prisoners and asked them what they wanted to work on for the next year, what subject you wanted to teach around or, or journey together around, they'd say forgiveness. And when those 52 weeks are up, if you say to them, now, where do you want to go? They'll tell you, let's talk about forgiveness. It's yeah. inexhaustible right in a prison and but i found this after after a number of years after probably eight nine years of going in norm i i, I we talk about forgiveness um from the perspective of um who we need to forgive um we talk about forgiveness being forgiven by god being forgiven by others but we don't teach self-forgiveness we teach self-acceptance self-forgiveness by far has been the hardest, hardest barrier to meet 
Um, and on top of it, I find I have, we go weekly as a staff, we all in, independently, but we each go weekly into the prison. So we do spend a lot of time in the prison. But I have journeyed with people who have come to a place of saying, yes, they forgive themselves. And three months later, they're walking the halls, they're downcast, they don't forgive themselves. What about, what about, what about? And so when you think about it, and and feel free to jump in here, when you think about it, can you really forgive yourself? Does the victim, um, does the offender ever become the victim? Now, I know that, that, that there are offenders who are also victims, but I'm saying in the same thing, do you actually become the victim in that you forgive yourself or do you always remain the offender who needs the forgiveness of others? And so you may get that forgiveness, you may not forget that get that forgiveness, and you so hoped you were up here, but the reality is you're a sinner like everyone else, in need of grace like everyone else. Um, and so is it that we have to accept that that's where we are? Can you actually forgive yourself? I mean, it's interesting. I was reading a book by Charles Williams, one of the Inklings. It's a book written in the um, uh, early 1940s while Second World War was on and the the hatred of Germany was significantly part of what was part of the British culture, it would be easy to say. Anyway, he gets into this thing around forgiveness and reconciliation. And one of the points he makes is that it has to do with memory, that God's forgiveness is synonymous with forgetting. Yeah. That if we're actually going to forgive someone else or forgive ourselves, then we have to have memories that get washed away. And so, you know, if, if we can never forget what we did, then we're always going to keep accusing ourselves. And, and the word forget, if you look at the origin of the word forget, it doesn't mean um, that it goes out of our memory for a, a bit, but that it's obliterated. When God forgets, he obliterates, right. um, which is why conversely, the Israelites would often say, don't, don't forget us don't obliterate us is what they were is what they were saying and and the word remember in in reverse invokes a covenant it's a covenant word to remember um someone is to remember the with god when we're talking about remember is to remember the covenant so that yeah i love what you've you've described perfectly and i and i love when we get together um norm because you you understand this word friend the way that that Jesus understood this way, friend, this word friend. It's not this sentimental, um, chummy, chummy thing, but it's this, it's this friend. It's being a real friend. And, um, and uh, yeah, I love, I love how you've described that. So you and I talked about a conversation one time that I created with Eileen Henderson, our dear friend who used to be in the circles of support business. And so she, she was on front lines too. And, and she and I, uh, with her organization, hosted a, a breakfast down at uh, the National Club back in the days when I was uh, down in the urban wilds. And uh, we had a couple hundred people at the in the breakfast, and we had a famous uh, celebrity speaker. But I got I wanted to interview Eileen, and so I said to her, you know, tell this group of two hundred Bay Street people why you should be helping uh, released sexual offenders. Uh, giving them circles of support and uh, 
why should these people care about this? They, they probably think lock them up and throw away the key. And she said, well, the easy answer is in God's economy, there are no throwaways. But she said, what you in the audience need to know is that if you want to protect your children and grandchildren, you want me doing what I'm doing because it's for your benefit that we're serving these folks with the particular needs that they have. Now, mm -hmm. take a wider look at the criminal justice system. Uh, what is it that you're bringing to the table that people who are going to listen to this uh, might not understand? And that, you know, we create barriers to helping people either in reentry or uh, mm -hmm. what kind of pressure we put on our politicians regarding criminal justice issues. Uh, what, what are, what, how do you deal with that sort of thing? Yeah. So, so I would echo her words. You want us doing this work. That's, that's for sure. Um, and I think it starts in where we were earlier in our conversation, providing that safe space. So you can, you can actually get to the root causes and the, and the root wounds uh, that cause the crime or the violence to happen in the in the in the first place. I don't like little cliche sayings at all, but but violence is the sound that pain makes. Um, has very much been a, a a true a true learning that we that I've seen as we as I've unpacked hundreds, if not thousands, of stories of uh, of prisoners over the last ten years. And so, uh, right, prison. Let, let me let me just get you to expand on that a little bit because. Yeah. That sounds like what a lot of people would start rolling their eyes at right there. Right. Like, cause yep. you know, like we'll say, okay, well, there's a lot of crime, but you got to go, what are the causes of that crime? Which I happen to agree with. Like, I believe that crime is something that is a result of a lot of our social injustice. There's a lot of other reasons for it too. Just, you know, cause rich people are crooks too, but, yep. uh, but it's, it, what is just expand a little bit on that because I don't want us to, to, uh, misunderstand what you're saying because this mm -hmm. uh, this business of you know crime is the noise that or whatever that you hear because of the pain that's further down the, the scale I mean, talk about that a little bit more so people who are not who are not heard and I'm not I'm not um, you know it's easy for people probably to assume that I side um, well you're very sympathetic toward prisoners you're very this and I, I'm a person who lives in the public as well and I want public safety as much as anybody wants public safety but there are a lot of things that get ignored there are a lot of injustices that happen that cause profound pain and and I could take a take a particular crime and unpack that crime um, if it weren't for privacy legislation I right. could I could take some real headliners actually and unpack those crimes and show you a whole other world of something that's been happening for 20 years does it excuse or or give license for someone to commit a crime absolutely not but that pain has to go somewhere and violence is typically where it goes. And sometimes it hits the criminal level, the criminal threshold, and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it hits the cr criminal threshold and it's and it's caught, and sometimes it it hits the criminal threshold and it's not and it's not caught. Um, and so that is the reality. So having programs that give the space to unpack that to hear someone, to affirm what, what has happened to them is wrong and to find a way forward is really how you're gonna bring somebody into what we call wholeness and holiness. 
that's where we're trying. That's the goal of the programs that our tagline is a pathway to change. Okay. Pathway to change. What, where are you going? The goal is wholeness and holiness. Um, but you cannot get there without unpacking all the pain. Now in our, in our culture, um, the tribe out of which I came, which is considered evangelical and whatever, have often been, um, you know, the hang them high and throw away the key crowd, you know, like uh, crim uh, capital punishment was would have been maybe more acceptable in my tribe than in some others. And uh, how does the gospel, how does Jesus, how does the character of God shape our understanding of of what we call justice what because when i was raised with a concept where justice was you know you get what you deserved mm -hmm. um yes we believed in justification by faith and all that sort of stuff and and we believed in grace but we really believed you know god's going to get you if you do x he'll do y um, and so we, we then take that to the criminal justice system or wherever. So talk a bit about what your understanding of justice is, uh, yeah. as, it as it comes to this question. So what you're describing is an ethic of punishment, but not in, in my opinion, not justice. So if I were to succinctly and quickly define justice, I would say that God takes what has fallen over and stands it up straight. That's what justice is. And so his first act of mercy is really the catching of us in our, in our sin, in our crime. It's an act of mercy because it stops it. It puts it to a dead stop so that there's an opportunity for an encounter to, to redeem that, to turn that around, to have that stood back up straight. So continue, expand on that a little bit more. What does that then mean to us in terms of how we view what we should be saying to our politicians, what we mm -hmm. should be saying in our churches, uh, saying when we're out having a beer with a friend and they're going, wow, there's just too much, you know. Yeah, and it and it's relentless, right? Every time we go out, uh, I don't know how often you get together with friends or or whatever, but every time you go out, there's a whole new collection of crimes to to talk about, and and we have this we have this paradoxical relationship too with with crime where we're we're against it, lock them up and throw away the key, but we lust for violence. We absolutely lust for violence. If you look at our TV programming or our movie programming and you know how many crime shows are out but, there. I mean we, we wouldn't have a life if we weren't watching mystery uh TV. So That's our lives right. would have no meaning if there was no Agatha Christie. So so we have to take a look at ourselves and that relationship that we have with with violence and ju and justice ourselves. But but certainly when we talk to um, when we talk to politicians and we do advocacy work, we don't do activism. There's a difference between activism and right. and advocacy. We are guests. Come for your tax number if you do activism. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> we we are guests in the institution, and we didn't get into 141 institutions by being activists. Right. So, but we do. Uh, 
advocacy work and, and we do work with the government now and it's wonderful to be able to be invited into those into those conversations and and it's really taking a look at I'm we're not against incarceration at, at prison fellowship we're not we're, we're not abolitionists we're not even against incarceration but what happens to a person once they get there that's that's where our interest lies and and so our advocacy work is working working with the government to help them understand what role they play, what role we play, and how they complement one another and work and work together, so that we actually can bring somebody out of a out of a uh, a prison, help them to reintegrate safely for themselves and for the public, and we're doing that. Our our statistics in our bridge care. Program program, we have about a 7% recidivism rate, very, very different from the, um, from the prison system what's, alone. What's, what's Bridge Care? So Bridge Care is a program of prison fellowship whereby we identify somebody four to six months before they're getting out of the prison, they want to join our, our program. And then what the program offers is they offer a, a, a mentorship and, and friendship circle uh, typically two people that will journey with that that person uh, for about 18 to 24 months um, after they after they leave prison um, and then before they before they may assimilate into a um, a church community or or the community at large we recognize that somebody who you know might be guilty of armed robbery one day um, and they're released from prison and sitting on a church pew the next day there's a lot to unpack and a lot that has to to happen for that to be successful and and in our experience that kind of a transition is not successful can't be on it's not you know it's beyond my comprehension what it would go from being institutionalized for a long period of time yeah and suddenly be stuck in something that has its own institutional environment but you have to ask to get dressed. You have to ask to go to the washroom. You have to ask to walk from here to 10 feet over there. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do that. And then all of a sudden you're sitting in a church and someone catches wind and then they want to put you up at the front and tell your testimony. And, right. and you know, a week later, the individual is, is um, back to drugs and, and falls apart. And so recognizing that this is a very, very vulnerable person uh leaving leaving an institution who needs to unpack this two tasks at a time instead of two thousand tasks at once so um just as we wrap up um one of the things that i i was pleased to see you invited a few of us to be participate in an event uh down at uh vanier uh, women's jail and it was quite a remarkable experience because we played a table game about what the barriers and difficulties are of re-entry to society. And these are two years less a day people. And we had one of the offenders at our table. She was a very sharp young woman. And uh, our table was a complete failure because most of the time we failed to listen to what she suggested we should do to keep from blowing up <laughs> and anyway what was interesting to me is that the social worker the deputy director of the prison her uh, superior who would have I guess would be an assistant deputy minister or something but you had the respect of people of the system while at the same time maintaining a clear identity of your own mm -hmm. and uh and, and I'm that to me is a great test of of the work that you've been doing and so do you see that happening more and more uh, in prisons in other parts of the country 
Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, our point person is always the chaplain and, and, and that's kind of our golden rule, if you will, um, that we don't, we don't do runarounds on the chaplain, but, but that we, we work through the chaplain, we work with the chaplain and, and, and what, because our programming all falls under that, but we're, we're interested not just in restoring prisoners, but restoring prisons. And so we also build up relationships and, and build up a scaffolding, if you will, within the within the prison and, and try to have relationships with wardens and superintendents um, and and correctional officers um, as well. So uh, just as we wrap up, what's uh, one or two things that you wish I'd asked and you want to just make a couple of summarizing comments about? Um, I if uh, one thing that I will, and that is our need for the the Canadian Christian community. So this work, you know, you have a you have a certain staff that you have here at the uh, at the office, but you've got. Uh, you've got 164 prisons in Canada, 141 that we're in, and, and the, the geography of Canada is very vast. And so we need the Canadian church community to step into this work. Our mission, of course, is to equip and mobilize that, that, that community uh, to respond to, to justice. And so um, for those who are listening, um, if prison ministry isn't part of your church, it's never going to be something that overtakes your church. Um, you know, it, it, not everybody's called to prison ministry, but neither is there nobody called to uh, prison ministry. And so two, four people from a church uh, would just love for you to uh, to connect with us in this work. Yeah. And there's another program, Angel Tree, which we yeah. didn't talk about. It. You mentioned, but I, my understanding is like several thousand children of prisoners mm -hmm. have over the past year received gifts, support, communication between parent and child, uh, camping experiences, mm -hmm. uh, like a whole infrastructure of people who are the children and the families of inmates uh, mm -hmm. who are receiving care, which is a big part of your mandate as well. And so there's a, you know, the, the world is huge that you're in and, uh, and it's a great uh, a great work that you do. And I'm grateful for the friendship we have. And um, so thanks for uh, joining me on this little uh, conversation. And maybe with some magic editing, it'll uh, come out uh, more intelligent <laughs> than I'm normally capable of producing. So thanks a lot, Stacy. And I'm just going to close so with a with a prayer that um, that we say as one, on one from one of our retreat uh, programs, and uh, just as a way of closing. Oh Jesus, you sat at table with the betrayed and rejected of Palestine. We pray for those today who do not feel welcomed in their daily lives. Oh Jesus, you were an inmate and you were naked, and you had no place to lay your head. We pray for the thousands of homeless men and women, old and young, in our towns and in our cities. Oh, Jesus, you belong to a refugee family. We pray for the millions of displaced people in our world and for the opening of borders to the nationless. Oh, Jesus, you cared for your companions and for the little ones who surrounded you. We pray for the dependent ones whom God has given us to care for. Oh Jesus, you who walk with the wounded along the road of our world suffering, we seek your grace of healing for the broken people and places of our world. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>